You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 126, The September Campaign, Part 18, Mopping Up. This week, a big thank you goes out to Paul, Ernie, Elijah, Anders, John, and Mike for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. With their support, they get access to ad-free versions of all of the podcast episodes. You can find out more at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Last episode covered the entry of the Soviet Union into the war against Poland when forces of the Red Army crossed the Polish border in the early hours of September 17th. This event heralded the beginning of the end for Polish resistance, and the next three episodes of the podcast will discuss the final actions of the Polish military all over Poland in the last weeks of September. Due to the disorganization of the first three weeks of the month, the final week of September would see disparate and isolated units all over Poland surrendering to the German or Soviet invaders. These events were not well organized or orchestrated, they were instead the actions of groups of Polish soldiers, big and small, that would slowly have their options reduced by the two invading armies until the only option was to surrender to whichever enemy they found themselves trapped by. Massive groups of civilian refugees would also be moving around Poland during these weeks of confusion. These masses of people are important to keep in mind because while most of the discussions in the history books, or, I mean, to be honest, on this podcast, are about the actions of military units and their soldiers, everywhere they traveled, they would have been surrounded by exhausted civilians who had fled in fear of the invaders. In Blitzkrieg Unleashed, Richard Hargreaves summarizes one example of what it may have looked like to be a part of a large group of Poles fleeing from their homes. In this case, he's using those who left Wuj in the early days of the invasion. Quote, A terrible panic seized people. They fled blindly. People crossed ditches and later went across country through fields. The cries of animals, screams and calls tore through the air. We heard the sobbing of despair, chaos, and confusion, mixed with a mad urgency, and dominated. Soon the roads and the fields were littered with cases and bundles and various pieces of luggage which people had pointlessly taken from their homes, most threw everything away when they couldn't follow the others. The ever-growing column of misery struggled eastwards, eventually reaching the Vistula south of Warsaw. For mile upon mile, their fields on the approaches to the river were strewn with abandoned carts crammed with personal goods. Horses and cattle wandered around, masterless. Left by the roadside were bundles of chests and chests and clothes and household goods. Anything that would impede the crossing of the river was cast away. Quote. German eyewitness accounts are also full of what it was like to see these poor souls. Here is Wilhelm Grossmann of the 309th Infantry Regiment describing what he would call a column of misery. Quote, miserable wagons, heavy farmers' carts, carriages, carts, pedestrians, cyclists, cattle driven along, miserable worried figures wrapped in rags, sad serious faces, lips pursed together, tears in their eyes, curious looks from children, End quote. Here is German infantryman Werner Flock describing what his unit found in one village that they entered which had previously been visited by German soldiers. Quote, Eerie ruins rise up from the ground and the ruins smolder. The smoke is blacker than night. It licks with ravenous greed and bright flames, cackles and pops, hisses and stews. 
Sparks fly up in the gray sky. Beams moan, groan, ache in the heat, and collapse, and a swarm of sparks rise up like a living soul. The horror peers out of houses which line the road through broken and smashed windows, while the flames of neighboring fires play their game of sparks against panes which have remained intact. We don't want to believe our eyes. We never saw such a scene, or had we only dreamed of such scenes in war. It's almost too much for today. We look and stare, we listen for the confusing sounds of burning barns and houses, and think for a second, the harvest is in. But where there was grain is now a black pile, which flames leap from, and white smoke rises like poisonous steam. And close to the flickering house, there's a black figure lying on the half-burned floor amid the smoke and suet of smoldering fire, a bundle of singed clothes. End quote. And while Werner Flock was describing just one distinct instance of these kinds of events happening or these scenes playing out in front of the soldiers or the Polish civilians, you know, this was happening all over Poland at this time. Starting on September 18th, throughout Poland, the German invaders who were moving east would begin to meet up with the Soviet invaders that were moving west. When these various units met, the German units had the standard message to give to any Russian soldiers that they met, which read, quote, The German army welcomes the army of the Soviet Union. Both the officers and the soldiers of the German army would like to be on good terms with you. The Red Army is expected to maintain this friendliness in return, end quote. At the same time, the Polish units that were trapped in the rapidly shrinking territory between the two invaders had very few options that they could pursue. The units that could would move southeast towards the border with Romania, but for many, this was not possible, and they were forced to take the action that seemed best to them at the time, either individually or with their units. Those that could move southeast were following the final set of orders given by the Polish High Command to all Polish troops in eastern Poland. The hope was that as many troops as possible would be able to cross the border and then make their way through Romania and eventually to Western Europe to continue the fight against Germany. The same hope existed for the political and military leaders of Poland who would evacuate across the border. They would take with them a whole list of items that had been evacuated from the cities of Poland, including art and state documents and about 80 metric tons of gold that they did not want to fall into German hands. For the gold reserves of Poland, this evacuation would be the first step in a long process that would see it move through Turkey and then Lebanon and then France and then French West Africa and then Britain and the United States, and then finally to Canada in 1944. It would then be exchanged back to Poland after the end of the war. Another group of individuals who would leave Poland at this time were a group of Polish mathematicians who were at the time working on cracking the encryption of the German Enigma machine. At this time, the Poles were the most experienced German code crackers, and due to the importance of their work, they were evacuated from Warsaw quite early, on September 6th, taking two intact German Enigma machines with them. They would find their way to Britain to continue their goals by helping British cryptologists working to crack the German encryption. Most of those who were evacuating found themselves in a rough position. Sure, they were able to save their own lives, with the hope of eventually finding their way to Western Europe— but they had to do so without their families, or most of the people that they knew. Soldiers and airmen who were evacuating with their units left behind those that they loved to a very uncertain fate. To quote a Polish pilot who would be ordered to fly his aircraft over the border, quote, I understood that the show was over, and felt strange. I couldn't believe that this was all over. Romania. Dear God. End quote. While some would be able to evacuate, for many Polish soldiers and civilians, that simply wasn't an option. 
This included some Polish units who were just in an area of Poland which made evacuation impossible, as well as those trapped in cities that were still resisting the invaders. This included the Polish troops in and around Lwów, who were keeping the Romanian bridgehead open for those who were trying to evacuate. One of the units making their way to Lwów, and, and then perhaps even further, were a collection of units that had originally been part of Army Krakow and Army Lublin, or, or some that had been kept in reserve. All of the units, which came from a variety of divisions, were disorganized, exhausted, and were much smaller than they had been a few weeks earlier. Some divisions were down to half strength, some were maybe a third. One of the most powerful units that was left was the Warsaw Armored Motorized Brigade, uh, which would still have about 80 armored vehicles in operation on September 13th. One of the major challenges for a unit like the Motorized Brigade was keeping their vehicles running. As they were evacuating from Warsaw and moving southeast, any vehicle that experienced even a small mechanical issue would have to be left behind due to the constant need to stay on the move. There was also, of course, the problem of keeping every vehicle fueled, which became more challenging by the day. This made every mile treacherous. Here's a quote from an officer from the brigade, Colonel Rowiski, who would later go on to help form the Polish resistance movement after the end of the invasion. He would later write about these moments when he was moving across Poland with his men and his machines, saying, quote, Every time we have to tackle a harsher bit of a trail and I see our machines stagger and moan, I feel as if something is being torn out of my heart. If only we could have a chance to attack the enemy and do our soldierly duty before we ultimately run out of gasoline. End quote. The armored units would get a chance to launch an attack against the Germans near the Polish town of Tomasov Lubiski, uh, which was about 80 kilometers northwest of Lwów. The attack would begin on September 14th, and it was a truly desperate venture. If the Poles could not capture the town and continue their way south, it was very likely that they would be forced to surrender as the pursuing German units would begin attacking from the north. The available Polish units gave it a, a good try first having to attack through the villages north of Tomasov Lebelski, but the German 4th Light Division would be prepared for the attack and would be able to use strong defensive positions to hold back the Polish attacks. The Poles would continue their attacks for several more days, but every day there were fewer armored vehicles available to join in the attack and fewer just Polish soldiers who could continue forward. On September 20th, the final stage of resistance began as the pursuing German units launched an attack from the north. This made any further attacks impossible, and the surrender started. This included the commander of the armies of Lublin and Krakow, and around 45,000 Polish troops that they had commanded. The commander of the 55th Polish Division would have this to say about his division's final days before they surrendered. Quote, The division shared the tragic fate of the whole army. We received no help from anywhere. We were left to fend for ourselves against the world's most powerful forces. End quote. That same sentiment would be shared by many officers all over Poland in the coming week, as more and more units that were remaining and were still defending Poland were forced to surrender. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The troops northwest of Tomasov Lebowski had been trying to break through the German defenses so that they could reach the city of Lvov, where Polish troops had been preparing for the coming German attacks as early as September 10th. The commander of the Lvov garrison, General Lagner, did not lack experience. He had fought in the First World War and had commanded the Lvov garrison since early 1938. He and everyone else knew how critical holding the city was to maintaining the route to Romania, and so a series of layered defenses were constructed around the city. The outermost line of these defenses were 20 kilometers to the west of the city, anchored by villages that were to be used as strong points against German advances. Closer to the city, civilian volunteers would construct a series of barricades and anti-tank obstacles around the outskirts of the city itself. The garrison originally had two battalions of infantry, a volunteer battalion, and then several units of militia. These numbers were then bolstered in the days before the German attack started by various units retreating to the city, similar to how Warsaw's garrison had been greatly expanded by units retreating back into the city. In the days before they reached Lvov, the German troops would be advancing and they would capture town after town as they moved east. On September 10th, they would capture Yaroslav, 90 kilometers west of Lvov. On September 11th, Sambor, 70 kilometers west of the city. On September 12th, they would be attacking near the outskirts of Lvov itself. Then on September 14th, the city of Shemeshal would fall to the Germans, resulting in the execution of 600 Jews within the city over the course of three days, the largest massacre of Polish civilians during the September campaign. Also on September 14th, the civilian leaders of Lvov would speak with Logner about the future resistance of the city. Massive numbers of refugees had fled to the city itself, and it was becoming more and more difficult to feed those that were inside of Lvov. Though there were also concerns about a lengthy resistance against the Germans and that it would do little but cause destruction to the city and the suffering of civilians in the city would just rise as the days went by. The military leaders in Lvov knew about these concerns and they understood them and they understood what continued resistance within Lvov would mean for those who live there, but they decided to continue, at least for some time. Attacks on Lvov would continue, you know, but at the same time, the attacking German units would also find themselves under attack from other Polish units approaching from the west. The first German units that reached Lvov would do so only by pushing forward and outrunning both their supplies and their supporting units, and this allowed them to reach the city as quickly as possible, but it left many Polish formations to the north and south of, of their sort of spearhead that had reached Lvov. And now they had to deal with all those Polish troops that were just wandering around, <laughs> sort of, behind them. After only a few days of attacking the city, the German units that had reached Lvov had to move to a more defensive posture, so that they could sort of defend themselves while more German reinforcements uh, moved in to assist them. 
One of the Polish units that were approaching Lwów from the west and southwest was the remaining troops of the Malopolska army, about 16,000 soldiers in all, that were commanded by General Soskowski. These units had started the war on the southern Polish border, and they would begin moving north, uh, you know, after the Germans invaded. On September 15th, as they approached the city of Lwów, they would begin a series of actions known as the Battle of Yarov. This battle would be launched by three Polish infantry divisions, the 11th, 24th, and 38th, roughly 50 kilometers west of Lwów. The general arrangement of forces was this. In the east was the city of Lwów and its garrison. Then to the west, there were some German units that had quickly advanced on the city. And then to the west of those, there were Polish units of these three divisions. Uh, Then pursuing those divisions were further German units that were pushing east towards them. The goal for Soskowski and his troops was to push through the German resistance to the south of Yavorov, and then to continue to Lvov, where they would then have to break through any German units that had established themselves west of the city. The initial Polish attack would go well. They would be able to capture several villages that had been taken over by the Germans in the previous days. There was real desperation in these actions, and there was hard and at times hand-to-hand fighting as the advance continued. During the first part of their attacks, the Polish units benefited greatly from the fact that the German units didn't necessarily expect them to attack, that they weren't expecting the Poles to take such proactive action. This included the SS Germania Division, which would be completely surprised by the Polish attack, to the point where they would abandon hundreds of vehicles as they quickly retreated from the area around Morzowice. Unfortunately, not all the Polish attacks were as easy as those on the SS Germanian Division at Mozhravice, and in some areas of the attack, it quickly turned into a brutal battle of attrition. And just like in every other area where such counterattacks began to bog down, the German advantages in artillery and air support quickly came into play. Over the following days, German air attacks would cause numerous casualties and disorganization among the Polish units. After their initial successes, the Polish advance towards Lwów slowed, and then, instead, efforts were put into bolstering the defenses against German troops advancing from the west. They had to shift their resources. These would be anchored by the forests that made up the Polish lines in the west, in which the Poles' defenders were able to hold off German attacks on September 17th. By this point, there was no real hope of reaching Lwów, though. No matter how good the Polish defenders did, it didn't help them in moving east. The only real hope was that the garrison of Lvov would be able to sally forth and break the German units that had established their lines to the west of the city, but this wasn't really possible. Because of this, after the 17th, the remaining units of the Malaposka army were forced to either surrender or break through the German units that surrounded them. This could only be done in small units, and so Soskowski would order these units to attempt to either make their way to the city or to the Hungarian border to the south. The desperate struggles that followed are poorly documented, and many Poles would perish or surrender over the following days as they tried to make these movements with their small units through German lines. While the remnants of the Malaposka army were fighting for their lives after September 17th, news of the Soviet invasion would reach Logner and the defenders of the city of Lvov on that same day. A message would be sent to the city that the German units were still to be considered the primary enemy, but if the Soviets arrived, they should be resisted with all possible means. After the news arrived, Logner considered abandoning the city altogether, but at that time there was still some hope that the Malopolsko units would be able to break through to the city, and so resistance was continued. 
even though if the Soviets did arrive, there would be little hope of any kind of actual resistance. Meanwhile, the Germans would continue their efforts to take the city, with air and artillery attacks continuing over the course of the next several days. One resident of the city, Alma Hesko, would write at this time that, quote, It is hard to live. Life is neurotic. Continually listening for aircraft, the whistle of shells flying overhead, being thrown out of bed at night, all of this affects one's mood, end quote. <laughs> which, which is uh, quite the understatement, I think. On September 19th, another German offer of surrender would be made, with Logner rejecting the idea once again. Another offer would be made the next morning, this time with Soviet units approaching from the east, but again it was rejected. This would be the final offer made by the Germans, as they were already preparing to hand over the city to the Soviets anyway, as it was within the Soviet zone of control. With the arrival of the Red Army, Logner began to accept the reality of the situation the city found itself in. The only outcome of further resistance would be the destruction of the city and the suffering of death of those within it. Ammunition, food, and water were all in short supply, and with the rapid advance of the Red Army, any small chance of reinforcements or support from outside of the city evaporated. Longner and his staff would have lengthy conversations about the possibilities open to them, but the options were limited. All of the options were also bad, but at least through surrendering, the suffering of the civilian population of the city would be limited. On September 21st, Logner would arrange for a meeting with the Soviet commander outside the city, and on the morning of the 22nd, the Soviets accepted Logner's surrender of the city and its garrison under very favorable terms, including the ability of men to return to their homes while all officers would be allowed to leave Poland. Later that day, the troops would surrender their equipment in the city, and they would begin marching out to the specified points east of Lvov. They were now prisoners of war in Soviet captivity. Over the following days, all of the Polish forces would be marched out of the city, along with some civilians as well. While Logner had negotiated very lenient terms for his men, while those terms had been accepted, the fate of those men was far from a happy one. Many would find their end in the Katyn forest, along with thousands of others. In the city, at least initially, the news of the arrival of the Red Army and then their entrance into the city was not seen as entirely bad by everyone. Some preferred the Soviets to the possibility of the city following under German occupation. One resident of the city, Lala Fishman, would later write, quote, Small wonder, then, that when the Red Army entered the city, it was a gala event and the cause of much rejoicing by the populace. Thousands of Lvovians turned out to greet the Soviet troops. The Soviets marched in columns down one of the city's main thoroughfares, and the people who thronged the sidewalks clapped and shouted, while pretty girls skipped and capered alongside the soldiers, tossing flowers to them and strewing blossoms at their feet. Lala would still be in Lvov when the Germans returned in 1941, and she would survive the war and later write Lala's story, the memoir of the Holocaust, which is where that quote came from. Regardless of how they felt about the Soviet invaders and the Red Army being in the city, for the people of Lvov, the first phase of the Second World War was over. Although, of course, there was, there was far more that would happen in the coming years. In other areas of Poland, resistance would continue. Next episode, we will move from southeast Poland to the Polish capital of Warsaw to cover the final days of the siege of the city.